Shumai a Kroiso. Hello and welcome to the New York Welsh podcast, the podcast that celebrates Welsh success stories in New York while hopefully inspiring the creation of some new ones. I'm Gideon. And I am Richard. For this episode, we sat down with our very good friend, playwright and screenwriter, Howell John. Yes, but Howell didn't uh, originally come to New York as as a writer. He came here in 2008 as an actor. Uh, He was in a Broadway production of Macbeth. Was this the same Broadway production of Macbeth that starred Knight of the Realm, Sir Patrick Stewart, by any chance? The same Broadway production that was eventually adapted into a feature-length film by PBS and BBC? I believe it was. That's the one. And we'll discuss it uh, at length with Howell, um, as well as uh, his journey to, to the United States, which he would eventually move to six years later to further a career as a writer. Yes, his, um, his plays have been professionally staged all around the world. All around the world. All around the world. Here in New York, uh, London, Wales, uh, Edinburgh, Finland, Denmark. He's had some good reviews too. Yep. Uh, London Evening Standard called Howell's work a gem. Uh, the Guardian even compared his work to that of the great Harold Pinter. Wow. And we were lucky enough to catch Howell uh, between his trips. Uh, he's currently splitting his time between New York, Alabama, and Wales, which we'll get into. Um, he's working on a commission currently for National Theatre Wales entitled The Wales Window. Now, those listening might be wondering what the connection is between Alabama and Wales. Well, we will find out. That's right. In just a few moments. Um, yeah, we discussed a lot of things, uh, mostly Howell's journey from aspiring actor to transatlantic playwright. Um, so without any further ado, I think we give the world an evening with Howell John. <laughs> Probably the best place to start is how we quite know each other. Oh yeah, so that's a um, uh, good good question, I guess. Um, we met originally getting through Emily, didn't we? I think we did. A mutual friend of ours uh, who is not of the Welsh, but she um, she is. We'll give her a maybe, pass. We'll give her. We'll give her a pass. Um, but she's a barber here in New York City. She cut my hair this afternoon. Yeah, did she? Ah, no way. You see, because I've had a cut this afternoon and I texted her. I was like, Emily, when can I have an Emily haircut? And she didn't get back to us because she was spending her time in your head and not mine. Mm. But yeah, yeah, that's how we met. And Richard, we met through the Sunken Hundred. We met through the Sunken Hundred, yeah. And um, the now uh, rest in peace, the Sunken Hundred, yeah. I should say. Which I think really uh, solidified our friendship as well. Yeah, that's really. right. Yeah, because we, did we meet at the Welsh lessons? I think so, yeah. I think that was the first, yeah, I think the first either the first Welsh lessons or certainly one of the first ones yeah. that we met. And um, uh, I guess for anyone listening, there, there were some free Welsh lessons in this very remarkable Welsh restaurant and bar um, in Brooklyn in Carroll Gardens, which is now sadly closed. But I think it was the only like really proper Welsh bar or restaurant here in New York. Is that a fair comment? I think there's one in Queens called Snowdonia. But and there was one in Bay Ridge called the Longbow, I think. The Longbow. But Sunken Hundred was like the full Welsh, you know. It was a, yeah, it was the full Welsh experience. Was, they had yeah. brains on tap for a time. <laughs> yeah, brains on tap for about two months before they couldn't get but it imported it stayed, anymore. stayed on the chalkboard for the rest <laughs> yeah. of the year. <laughs> And there was Pandarin and Tiny Rebel. Yeah, Tiny yeah, Rebel yeah. Draft, so. Yeah, no, but it created a real, it really fostered a real sense of community, didn't it? I think it's fair to say. Absolutely. Oh, definitely. It was the heart of the Welsh community yeah, for me. Yeah. And they started doing some free Welsh lessons. And I've just started going to that because I don't speak Welsh. Well, I'm just starting now. I'm now a bit further down the line than I was. I think we all are, it's fair to say. You, I think you guys are probably further ahead of the game than I am. But um, 
but I think we did we meet in the lessons because I told you about the lessons, didn't I, Gid? Yes, and that's how you came along. Mm-hmm. Yeah, did we meet I at think, the lessons? I think we met at the lessons, I believe. Yeah, I think so too. So you were an actor first, then a playwright. Yeah, I was an actor. Yeah, I trained. Uh, um, uh, I went to drama school in London, Lambda, yeah. and then. Um, mm-hmm. And then I was an actor from 2000. Well, I did loads of stuff in college and school and all that stuff. But I guess professionally, whatever that means. Um, after I was trained, you know, whatever the fact that means. But um, I uh, from like t- I left in 2004, and I worked until probably my early 30s. And then it was sort of I went through a bit of a crisis with acting. I mean, I just it was it's a bit hard to describe the acting business to anyone who's not an actor because I think once you're in the business itself, it's a very strange and weird place. It's a bit like a pyramid scheme in many respects, you know, like you can't sort of, it's the access points are very limited, you know, and so you, it can be a struggle um, to get access to the work that you want to do. And even then when you do get access to get in the room to audition for something, you know, it can, obviously you're then up against lots of other people. So, but it can, so, you, but actually even getting in the room in the first place can be a bit of a struggle. And I mostly did, I did some good work mostly in theatre and I worked fairly regularly, which is good, you know, and did some good jobs. That's how I first came to America, mm-hmm. and um, work that I'm really proud of, actually. But I, I found it was a bit of a struggle to get seen for the work that I really wanted to do at a certain level. So I got to my early 30s, and I started to find it really frustrating. And it was, and I did the things that actors do to try and change that up, which often means changing agents. And I mean, like, all my agents I know work very hard for me, all that stuff. But you know, there's only so much they can do. It's the sort of pyramid nature of it. If you're not with the right people, sometimes they can't even get you indoors. So then I remember being in that funny place of being like, I'm ambitious and I want to work and do the thing. But it was like I was banging my head up against a wall mm. quite a lot. And I'd started writing and I'd had a play on that went pretty well which was nice <laughs> you know and then which, which play was it uh, it was my first play i'd done a um well it's funny god it's actually quite a long time ago now but uh i'd done an acting job at theatre cloyd in north wales mm-hmm. um which is a really well respected rep theatre and you know in that way that a lot of welsh culture often goes under the radar slightly in like the in the larger you know sways of uk media you know g- uh, Cluid or Cloyd, depending on how you want to say it, have, have, have a reputation of being a really top class rep theatre and do really remarkable work a lot of the time. And they were run by Terry Hands, who was the uh, artistic director of the Royal Shakespeare Company for a while. And then he took over Cloyd for about oof, 20 years, I think, recently retired. But he used to do, like, Terry was fantastic. I mean, I owe him a lot, actually, because I went there and did, I owe two people a lot from that theatre. Um, and the first, but the person I really owe a lot to is Kate Wasserberg, who was then artistic, who went from Cloyd to become the artistic director of a theatre in Cardiff called The Other Room. And so, like, a little shout out there to The Other Room, now run by the very brilliant Dan Jones. Um, but Kate uh, was the associate at Cloyd, and I worked, I did a play with her as an actor. There. I did The Glass Menagerie by Tennessee Williams, playing an Americanese, yeah, uh, funny enough. Um, and we went on tour in Wales doing that and had a great experience. But I'd been writing this play in my spare time, not with really any sense of being like, I'm a playwright or anything. But I'd had something I'd wanted to write from about 26. And I spent a couple of years in my spare time. I wrote it quite quickly, but just when I sat down, I'd sort of write a chunk. And then already think about it for a little while and then sit down again and carry on. And 
And I had it in a drawer for a couple of years, tried to get it on in a few places. And it got, you know, playwriting is even stranger in some respects than acting. Like, like the actors' points again to get it. There's not many theatres, you know, well, there's lots of smaller theatre, fringe theatres, but actually, you know, producing houses, taking new work. It's, you can count a lot of those on, in, particularly in London, definitely on two hands. Um, and then outside of the, re- you know, in the regions, it's quite, as they call them, the regions, it's tricky to get work on, you know, and um, that's why things like Edinburgh and the festival are so important. Um, mm. But I had tried to get it read in, at a variety of theatres and like the big new writing theatres in London and got quite far down the line with a few, which was nice for me. It was the first play to hear that gained positive feedback, but it didn't get picked up. But I did this acting job at Cloyd did the Glass Menagerie. And I remember being in the second theatre there, it was called the Emily Williams, um, I think. Oh God, I hope that's the name of the theatre. I just said that without thinking, but... Um, uh, but I remember doing this, but having a great experience doing that show as an actor. But I remember being there, being like, "Oh, this theatre be really good for my play. <laughs> I think that'll be really good for my play." <laughs> and then we went on tour and finished the play. And um, I think this is indicative of that. Really, like the theatre business is small, you know, because getting a play read and put on. I mean, God, any American listeners to this who are interested in playwriting will know it's even more difficult here. But I sent Kate the play that I'd written <clears throat> basically I was saying I've written a play <laughs> and uh and she was she sent me a really lovely email back which was like that's nice thanks so much for sending me your play <laughs> you know but in a really nice way but along the lines of being like actors always sending me fucking plays and uh, <laughs> you know and uh but to be fair to her you know she mentioned she said she'd give it a read and um and she was she was such a wonderful director a wonderful woman she's running a very esteemed company called Out of Joint now and anyone who knows theatre in the UK well, that's, that's a big company and a big deal so she's doing tremendously well and well deserved but um she said she'd read the play and this was just after we finished the show which was like November 2009 and it's worth probably mentioned that normally the turnaround of a new play getting read going through the system and actually getting on a stage is at least a year I, I would say mm-hmm. I mean I may be wrong but you know normally you go through a whole reading and then a bit of workshopping or you know noting stages all that stuff before it even gets close to production and um, you know I think in America it's even longer it's like years you know you'd be lucky mm-hmm. if you can get stage but but it was weird so I sent it to her and then after a couple of weeks she wrote back and she was like I love your play I'd love to do it here we have a slot in May <laughs> wow that was and she, first no, email yeah, yeah, like, yeah. yeah. And, she, and I was like wow but she was like it's not actually my decision she was like Terry has to part, say yay or nay but I'd really love to do it and I'll propose it and we need to make because the great thing about Terry uh, was that and not that I know Terry particularly well, but I think it's fair to say that he programmed quite late, which increasingly is quite rare in theatre, that often you organise programmes relatively mm-hmm. far in advance and you're pitching things like over 18 months until things get programmed and stuff, I think. Um, but he would programme quite late. And so, you know, he literally was like, we have a slot for a play in three months' wow. time and um, we'll be going into rehearsal in three months. So she, would, Kate, if I remember correctly, just said, well, we're umming and ahhing over a couple of others, but I'll send it in the mix. I'd really like to do it. And Terry Hands, bless his soul, took a complete punt on me. You know, he'd obviously how seen you, me. How old were you at this point? I was 29. Wow. Wow. Yeah, he just, um, he'd obviously seen me do the play as an actor, so I wasn't like a completely unknown quantity, but that's very different from writing. And, um, but you know, he just went, yeah, sure. <laughs> and, uh, but I didn't know that he'd said, yeah, sure. 
I just got a phone call halfway through December by the producer going, yeah, great. So look, we're going to go into rehearsal in March and look, are you available for casting in general? I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. And he was like, yeah, so look, have you, did your agent get the contract? I was like, I don't have an agent. Well, we, who is this? You know, <laughs> who is this? Yeah. And it John? was, yeah. <laughs> mum? Yeah. Mum, is it you? Is it you putting on a funny voice? And, uh, but he, um, you know, it's just, but this was very much Claude at the time. It's a really lovely place at the time, slightly ramshackle, you know, um, in the best possible way and uh, kind of family feel and um, and he was like oh Christ he was like I just thought, I presume that you know did no one, no one phone you up oh Jesus like, we want to do the play and I was like oh that's great I knew Kate said she wanted to but I didn't know and she, he was like oh Jesus shit you know <laughs> <laughs> and um, uh, and he was like I, but you'd have to, I need you to sign the contract and I was like oh, well uh, just send it to me I guess but I haven't got an agent I mean ah well uh, it's nothing abnormal I mean I'll send it over to you and you sent me this contract I remember reading it being like I have no idea if this is right or not you know they're going to so pay me how did, did you get well, a lawyer to read, read it or what did you no, but then I ended up signing it? No, it's just very weird. I mean, that's what's this whole experience of this play was so bizarre because it was just like things happened so quickly and went so well. Then I think I got a very warped idea of what it was to be a playwright, you know, because that happened so quickly. And I remember I needed an agent. Oh, I wanted an agent to go through that contract. I didn't know if it was, you know, legit. I'm sure it was legit. And in fact, it turned out, I think it was completely legit. But um, but I just did, had no idea, you know. And um, I remember I sent it off to a, a friend of mine who was working in a literary agency in London. And I was like, I need a playwriting agent to look over this thing. I don't mind if they want to take me on. I just, if they want to take 10% just off this one contract, that's whatever, you know. And um, But then I ended up getting an agent off the back just of wow. the fact that I had a... So, yeah, and then... Um, and what was it What was the play called? The play was called Pieces pieces yeah it was called pieces it was a three-hander and um and so it was like it happened very swiftly you know it was really odd and then we were casting in january and we got these fantastic actors and um and it went on and it went on very successfully and Claude in the second theater and played to great houses and you know it, it's hard to describe how rare that is i think and not to be like hey i'm so rare but just more that you know normally it just takes a lot longer right. you know and, and what, what was it can you give it can you give it for people who don't know the just a quick premise of what the play was about. Yeah, it's a sort of, um, well, I'm not very good with sort of descriptive labels, but um, it's a sort of psychological, it's a story about grief, actually, and about childhood, but it plays like a sort of psychological thriller. Hmm. And um, the simple, I mean, the short version is it's, it plays out in one room in a house, and it's about two twin children who've lost their parents, and their godmother arrives to look after them after the funeral but they deal with their grief at having they live in like the remote Welsh borders was with it so it was kind of has a fairy tale feel to it but I kind of imagined it being sort of in the sort of the you know the forested mm. fairy tale forests of the borders country around sort of in the edge of um uh, you know Shropshire and the Welsh borders there and I kind of imagined it around there but um, it involves that they the way they deal with their grief as children often do in fact is uh, this, they kind of started to try and play act their parents still being there so they started to sort they start to sort of speak like them and dress like them oh, wow. and do the things that they did in the house but the, the idea that, that which made it theatrical was that adults were playing the kids and so the idea was that the more they did that the more they actually started to look like the parents themselves and the, of course like the godmother has a history with the parents which then starts to become sort of made flesh as the play goes on and all sorts of other stuff happens but yeah that's the base that's the basic tenet of it I'm, I'm curious I definitely want to hear more about and jump into some of your plays but um <coughs> You know, you mentioned at the beginning openings of your your brief acting career. Yeah, I'm yeah, yeah. I'm not, we're not going to let you off that lightly. No, it's thing. okay. Yeah, let's, no, it's fine. Let's, let's, let's jump into the long arc of things. It is pretty brief. It's like <laughs> about seven years, but you know, I did something. 
Did you do a bit of writing and then a bit of acting, and was there a crossover? Uh, there was a bit of a crossover, yeah, because I was still an actor when pieces went on, but I was like, because actually the other thing is it went on and Cloyd did really well, and then it went to, it went off Broadway for like six weeks or something at the end of two thousand and ten. So there's a festival every year called Brits Off Broadway, and they bring over supposedly the best of British work. But um, I think it's more often than not, it's like who can afford to come to New York? And mm-hmm. uh, but um, but it came here as well. So that was the second time I've been to New York for work. I'd been there as an actor about two years previously. But so what, was, my, what was that for? Well, the acting job yeah. I'd come here for. I came in a production of uh, Macbeth in 2008. And was was this with Patrick Stewart? It was with Patrick Stewart. Yeah, yeah. yeah. P Mac himself. I have yeah. to say because he's he's one he of my be. one of my heroes. So uh, is he? Yeah, Patrick Stewart is one of my. Well, I hope Patrick's listening. Uh, he's a lovely man. <laughs> Pick up Patrick. <laughs> I'm sure he is. Well, you never know. We'll send it on or some maybe. Um, uh, but yeah, yeah, I came over here in that Macbeth, and um, it's my first time in New York. I think wow. that was that when was I, your first time visiting. Yeah, I'd actually no, it wasn't my my first time. I'd come I, that job, that Macbeth job. It's become like a sort of apocryphal gig for me because I think a lot of actors, you know, who are just sort of jobbing actors, have a couple of big gigs, which kind of are so called, you know. <laughs> you kind of sit in your memory as being this time where lots of remarkable things happened and you go to big theatres and stuff and and certainly like that was the one for me you know I did much bigger parts in other plays and lots of other plays were maybe actually more important for me but I think of that experience as being a very extraordinary experience because I was playing a variety of smallish parts but it was really a company show but um, I'd come to New York beforehand, before we'd come here with the show, but with people from that show, because we started it in Chichester. But then suddenly we're in the West End, and people just go nuts from the Gilgood, and it was like, you know, people going, people meeting backstage, it was mad. Wow. I mean, I could go to town, like, being a name-dropping dickhead. I mean, but it was just like, remarkable people turning up, and you're just like, what is going on? You know, <laughs> what's happening? And then they were like, we want to take you to Brooklyn for six weeks, to BAM, and we were like, well, all right, brilliant. Wow. And we had, they paid us to have two months holiday, so, you know, to make sure we all retained and then when we got out here then suddenly we want to be on Broadway for five months and it was mad so it was a whole year did you do five months yeah we did five months on Broadway and it was just nuts and we also all went a bit nuts I mean it was our first time properly I've been in New York in 2007 with us for a holiday (laughs) with a couple of guys from that company and then suddenly we were coming back and originally we'd all packed for six weeks and then we got here and they're like actually could you stay till the middle of June and we were like what and it was really uh, I so mean, they said so they extended it once it wasn't like they kept extending it no they just there was like a limited run you know and uh, but it was like this major event it was really uh, so it, was, were it was were you exploring New York did you oh, get much mate, time I off I mean it was or? that thing where you know never again will I live that way I mean it was yeah. ridiculous I mean they treat you well if you come here on a big hit show in theatre in the States they treat you much better than they do the other way around, you know. I mean, to be crude, it was just financially much, much better for all of us, mm-hmm. you know. And we were given a free apartment each. Wow. You know. And so, did you get time to enjoy the city? Or yeah, totally. I mean, because we'd been doing the show by that point by seven months. So as far as I was concerned, I was someone who'd be, you know, playing small parts. I mean, I'd still get nervous every night. And it was, you know, it was hard work as a show. And you want to commit and do a good job and be professional. But... You know, I mean, people like Patrick and Kate Fleetwood, who played Lady Macbeth, they really had to look after themselves because doing Macbeth eight times a week for that length of time. I mean, in your late sixties, yeah, (laughs) Christ. I mean, and he's got a huge amount of energy, and but he only missed about three shows in the entire year, which is really something. I mean, you know, a lot. I think a lot of lesser actors wouldn't have managed it. You Um, don't get to be captain of the Starship Enterprise. No, you don't. Make it so. Uh, But he, uh, but he was amazing, and everyone was amazing actually. But you know, it was intense when we came to uh, to New York. We'd been doing it for a long time. Then we had the surge of energy being here there on Broadway but you know I was really enjoying the city I had Mm -hmm. 
too much fun. Did did the the um, the experience of being here for that long in such glorious circumstance inform your decision to eventually move here? Yeah, totally, absolutely. Like I had such a good time, but it was like an unrealistically good time because we were being paid ridiculously well. We had a free apartment. I mean, I had a free, huge L-shaped studio on East 12th and Broadway. I mean, it was ri- ridiculous, like for free. I remember turning up and we'd arrived late on the plane and I was the last person out of the, like, the minibus and this lady who was from the theatre like took me up to the apartment. I was so tired and I had a few drinks on the plane and she walked me in and I remember saying to her, I was like, well, this is lovely, but where am I staying? <laughs> <laughs> you just couldn't believe it. I just couldn't believe it. You know, and she was like, no, this is this is your place, this is your apartment, these are your keys. And I was like, oh, right. You know, so I went to bed. Trying to act it cool. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, it's sure. not quite as nice as my place back yeah, home. Yeah, but it totally It'll do. It totally did. It had a real effect on me. And actually, I think potentially, Rich, following up like what you asked a bit earlier, I think it has, it can have a slightly detrimental effect because it was unlike anything other in the rest of my life at the time, you know. By the t- when I left, I'd been sharing a really nice little flat with a friend of mine on the Essex Road in North London, you know, um, in an ex-council estate, and that was lovely. But And then suddenly going from... And we'd been doing the show, obviously doing well in the West End, but then suddenly being in New York and like being the toast of the town and being paid more money than I'd been paid before, a free apartment, you know, it was... It was a lot to take in, but it was gloriously good fun. I mean, it, mm. got, it got pretty ridiculous. I mean, I was, I mean, I was going out like six nights a week. Oh you gosh. took a night off. I would take a night off, maybe, and maybe you know. Actually, but you'd sometimes make up not for always. You make up for it with a mask. Yeah, yeah. I make up for it on the Monday an afternoon. Yeah, session. <laughs> yeah. And um, but I was re- I was hitting it, you know. But lots of us were, and actually quite a lot of the com- some of us in the, some in the company were like kind of. Some, it got a bit off key, you know, like because we were away from home for a long time as well, and people. Were and was it was that, it was a big age range, or were you all kind of the yeah similar? massive age range? People were there from like the youngest in the company at the time, Ben. I think was about twenty three. 22 maybe and the oldest person in the company was uh, Paul Shelley who I think was in his early 70s or making wow. feast at the and time h- and how many of you? 18 of us yeah oh not that many then yeah, I, I mean, had a couple in my of, head it was more quite yeah, a and a couple group. of stage management that's a large so that's company. like a rugby team yeah yeah and it felt like it at times so yeah. well not <laughs> even actually. yeah yeah full bench and um, we uh, but it was extreme you know and I, I think I had an extreme time but like an extremely good time too much fun is what I tend to say about that time mm. I had too much fun if i if i think i didn't i've never you know i've acted a little bit but i, th- I think about uh a six month long rugby tour which maybe is yeah used to be back in yeah the, but it in, felt like that like, days oh, gosh that, that that sounds i don't think you could survive that. i mean look like, the old cliches were true in many respects like actors look, tend to like a drink because you know part you know and like to go out and over it's social animals all that all those mm-hmm. cliches in some respects are true but i think our company was living that because we weren't expecting to be go to these places and you know a lot of us really embraced it and why not you know we had a fantastic time I think but also some people like went too far too far um, any of you who are listening you know what I'm talking about I mean I went too far I definitely did I, I lost my voice for the last month of the run wow I mean I was hang on but you, you said you were singing as part of your uh, yeah I had to sing and I had to sing I this. Gone down too I, well. no it didn't go down too well but I didn't really I wasn't really conscious of what you know exactly but it was undoubtedly that I was just pushing it too hard but it suddenly disappeared like a month before the end of the run I mean I just woke up one day and I was like just nothing was there well, well how did you manage well I had a, actually this is uh, <laughs> I had a very entertaining experience where I 
texted the company manager, whose name was John, John Gendron. Don't know what's happened to him, lovely man. But um, So I texted him in silent text. I was like, John, I've lost my voice. Literally nothing is coming out. I feel like potentially sore. I don't know what's going on. And he texted back immediately. He went, go to see Dr. Gwen Corvin, 85th and Park or whatever. In the yeah. Upper East Side. Had him on speed dial. Literally. And he was like, get a car. I'll reimburse you later. So I went, okay. So I was like, sure. Um, no, I mean, I couldn't even pronounce, there wasn't even a whisper. It was completely gone. And I had a month's left of shows. And it was a big vocal show. This is why I'm, probably my behavior at the time was so ridiculous that, you know, I had to scream my head off for the first 10 minutes of the show with this huge speech. And then I had to sing later in it and do lots of other shouting and thrashing around, all sorts of stuff, you know, so ridiculous, really. But, you know, partly the adrenaline of having such a good time in your life is sort of carrying you through, you know. Mm. And I think I probably hit a bit of a physical wall and I didn't realise it. And I, um, but I went to see this voice doctor in the Upper East Side and had a very remarkable experience where I walked in there and I remember walking into her office. It was like off Park Ave. In somewhere in the Upper East Side, we all know what the Upper East Side is like, you know. And um, I remember walking in, feeling concerned, you know, being like, I might not be able to do the show for the rest of the month. And uh, I had an under, we all understudied each other, so I, someone would go on, my friend Ben Carpenter, in fact, did go on that day, I think. But bless him, he had to sing my song. And, uh, but I had to, I walked into this office of this doctor, and I remember vividly that she had a big gold disc above the reception desk. And it was a Celine Dion gold record <laughs> signed by Celine Dion saying, Dear Dr. Corvin, thanks for saving my career. <laughs> wow. And I remember being like, I'm in good hands. <laughs> <laughs> and I walked into this lady's um, office and she was sort of this extraordinary looking woman. Like, um, my memory of it has probably become slightly warped. But I remember she was like super tan. And um, maybe a bit of work done, but, you know, she was, like, really awesome, you know. But she just looked like she mean business, you know. And she was just said <laughs> to me, she was like, what's wrong? And I just pointed at my voice, and I was, you know, like, I was like, you know, like looking desperate. And she just, like, she went, open your mouth. And I opened my mouth, and she just got this tube, and she was like, relax. And she, like, put this tube in my mouth, and then pulled it out. And I was like, <laughs> and she'd taken a photo of my vocal cords. And immediately there was this image on this big screen of my vocal cords looking like they had been bombed. You know, they were like pussy and white. You know, it was really not nice. It was unpleasant, you know. And I was like, oh, my God. I obviously didn't say it. I was like, oh, my God. And she just turned to me. She was, you know, she could do this. It was all in the space of like a minute, you know. She was like, you're inflamed and infected. And I was like, okay. <laughs> and then she just went, lower your pants. And I was like, what? <laughs> Like, Literally, it was like no one had given me the memo. I was like, oh, my pants. And I remember pointing at my throat. I was like, no, the issue is my throat. It's not my pants. My ass is not the problem. <laughs> and she was like, look, lower your pants. And I was like, oh, no. And she was like, just lower your pants. She was like, she was going to give you a, a shot. I'm going to give you a shot. And I was like, but there was that thing where she thought as I'm an actor and I was on Broadway that I would know what she was doing. I actually had no idea. But I think, you know, people who do big musical theater sh- shows probably knew exactly what was going on. And what she was going to do, as she explained to me, was give me a shot of steroids in my ass. Mm. <laughs> she was like, I'm going to give you a steroid shot in your ass. And I was like, I was like, 
And she was like, then I'm going to give you a course of steroids and then you're going to be fine. And I, was, yeah. I remember being, surely not. And so I pulled my pants down. She shoved a big needle of steroids in my ass. And she just said to me, she was like, don't say anything until six o'clock. Have a gentle warm up. And by eight o'clock, you'll be absolutely fine to do the show. Take the steroids over the week and let me know how you are by next week. And hopefully you'll be okay. Wow. And I was, swear to God, it was bananas. Because I remember walking out of her office being like, she must be on crack or something. Like, There's no way this is going to be okay in the space of four yeah, or just five seen hours. pictures of... Yeah, it's yeah, seen my phone look like bleeding throat actually she just shoved a plastic straw down and she's got she's got that stock image up on the screen yeah yeah, yeah. brings it up anytime anyone it's comes in ruse. but I, I remember that i got to the theater and i remember getting there that night and um kate was playing lady macbeth she was like she'd obviously heard she was like you okay and i was like yeah actually i think there's a bit going on she went do you see gwen corovin and i went yeah she was like you'll be fine <laughs> And then Patrick Stewart walked up to me and he was like, how, how are you? And, um, and I was like, actually, I'm all right. And he went, you went to see Dr. Corvin? And I went, yeah. And he went, oh, you'll be fine. He went, did, he went, did she give you the vitamin E shot? <laughs> like and I went, no. And he went, oh, next time, next time. And, uh, <laughs> and I was like, okay. We're giving away all of Dr. Corvin's secrets. Yeah, yeah. And then I, uh, so I, but then within about half an hour, my voice, I was warming up and it was fine. Then I felt like Superman. It was like the steroids hit and I was like, kapow. And I was like, I'm going to take over the stage. You're like, Patrick, like, I've yeah, got this. Yeah, I've got this. Step aside. And, uh, but I felt like I had one of the best shows that I'd had that night. And then, do you think you had it? Do you think it was just the steroids? Oh no, it was totally the steroids. But uh, <laughs> but um, and then the but the next day, I was started taking these steroids, and my voice was really shaky. And um, I spoke to her. I think I spoke to the doctor again, and she was like, "Take a show off, but keep taking the steroids. You should be fine tomorrow." And so the understudy went on. Ben went on. But um, but actually, by the end of the week, my voice was. Re- I did all the shows, but it was really not good. And I went back to see her again. And she just said, I'm going to give you another shot in your ass, essentially. Yeah. She was like, we'll have to do it once a week until you finish the job. Because it's not good. She said it's not going to get better. But if you want to get through the show, I'll give you a shot once a week and a course of steroids. So I had a month of steroids. And Ben, I think, went on twice. But I didn't really recover until the end of the show. So, yeah, that's how much fun I had. That I was on a steroid course with, uh, yeah, with a needle in my ass for, um, for the final month of my time. That's New York City for you, everyone. When my first play came over here, I then... Uh, and which play? Which play was pieces, pieces, the one I told you about, came over here. I then did some... I did a weird... Uh, I did a workshop of a play as an actor that a friend, someone I knew here asked me to do, playing an American character, actually, rather weirdly in New York. But I got an agent from that over here. Nothing flash, but they put me up for a series of meetings. But I remember it was another reason why I wanted to come back to America. That's why I mentioned it, because I was getting better auditions here than I ever did in the UK. Wow. Why do you think that is? I think they have a very generous attitude towards British actors. So, you know, any Welsh actors listening, <laughs> if you're interested, if you're feeling frustrated and not getting through doors, I mean, I genuinely would recommend like finding a way to get here in that respect. Mm. It's instant credibility. It's in- Yeah, I mean... And, and, and when you say... I mean, so when you say getting here, like, what, do you just get on a plane and... Well, no, no, it's not... Obviously, it's not as simple as that, there's lots of hurdles to leap. So I, it, I was fortunate because I'd come here with that production. I'd done a Broadway show. So in terms of getting a work visa then to return, I had, and my first play had been on here. So I applied for that, you know, the O one, one which is, that's the so-called artist visa, you know, that you can get. And it can be tricky to get by on the O one one visa because essentially you're, you have a sponsor, normally it's your agent, and then you have to have, you can only earn through the work you do with them. And, um, and I now have a green card, you know, I went through that since I, since I came back. So I wanted more flexibility and wanted residency and I'm very glad I did. But I think there are ways and means to try and find your way out here in terms of once you've done training and to try and find your way here to get that visa, you have to put some legwork in. But I think if you can get representation, and that's easier said than done, obviously, but I think the reason why I think it's possible 
is because there's the partly why I think I picked up more meetings when I was back. It's not just that I'd done a show on Broadway, although I'm sure that had an, an aspect to it. I wasn't playing big parts in that or anything, you know, even though I had a cachet. But I do think that there is, I mean, I, it's not, I, I think there is definitely like an enormous generosity of spirit towards British actors. Or British people generally in New York City. I, I, I would say British people generally. Yeah, but pa- yeah, but particularly in theatre and film and television, they have. I, I wouldn't even say a generous spirit. I'd say it's more like there's a you're encountering a belief system that you're good. Hmm. You know, they just believe that you're good. And if you've done some, if you've been to a good British drama school, if you're trained at a British drama school, I think what you tend to encounter, and it's really lovely to be on the receiving end, is that you can do a, you can do a good job. Now, like I think it was also true here, particularly in like the entertainment industry, is that if you're not up to scratch, they're just not going to see you again. So you've got to do a good job. Right. <laughs> you know, you've got to go in and do a good job. It's kind of like the legal system is that you're good until proven shit. Yeah, exactly. But they can't. I think they kind of think that if you have had a classical British training, they're more generous towards you. I think than you are in the UK. You know. They kind of I mean I can think of a few times where I had this American agent over here and of course I haven't been acting for a while like my American accents were all over the shop but I'd spent a lot of time putting the legwork in to make sure that I had a good American accent I could go out for American work and I can remember a couple of times where you know his name was Ken Ken Melamed a lovely man he uh, um, you know he'd phone me up and he'd be like how I got a meeting for you and I'd be great and, and he said it's an American part and I'd be cool and I'd, be, I'd be like okay and he went, you've got to go in being an American they just want to see American actors but then, so he obviously hadn't told them to do the accent yeah he was like the just, you arrive. yeah exactly from the moment you arrive that's not uncommon a lot of people do that anyway now I think because they just want you to see you as the part it's like people don't really have a huge amount of imagination they just want to see the part you go dressed as it if you have to wear a guy in a suit wear a suit you know all that stuff um, but and that goes as far as going in with the voice even though they may know that you're not but they just want to hear it you know but it helps in the states because one they're more business like there's not much chat often before you actually do the thing they'll be like hello how's it going you'll be like i'm okay and they're like great whenever you're ready you know and you do the thing but i can remember a couple of times where i'd done all that and then afterwards i'd done the scene it'd gone quite well and they'd be like thanks so much and i just then in my normal voice being like thank you it's been great thanks so much and they'd be like oh you're british oh yeah and then there's been this funny moment where they go oh sure you know, which is a bit like, of course, you know, of course, this is like because because you are a British actor, this is something that is to be expected that you could do play an American so part. But that's not. I mean, that's. I don't think that is true. That doesn't equate. That is not like an actual thing. You know, not all. You know, necessarily. But it's a. It's nice to be on the receiving end of that belief because it gives you. Um, that was Richard's cat there in the background, called Nick. Uh, but now I've lost my train of thought um, but that's not I, I mean I think the simplest way to put it is that as an actor over here that's really nice to be on the receiving end of it makes you make sure you want to do a good job because you'll be on your toes but you're getting seen for work which in the UK you'll never get seen for well, you know and also the flip side is true like I don't the British industry is not as generous towards American actors that is definitely true like you know if an American actor turned up in London and be like I'm going to pretend to be a British person you know most British casting directors I think and I may be being very unfair would you know in the background would be like no you're not mate <laughs> you know <laughs> you're not no you're not or but or you'd have to go and do a very convincing one I think I mean I'm, I instinctively would think is that if they did the same thing as that I just described and then walked out you know finished done a convincing job and being like hey actually I'm an American person you know they, a lot of people in the UK would be like oh fuck you man <laughs> you know well, it's very British but over here there's this really it's, so it is a re- nice it was great for me to come back and actually feel like I was getting seen for things that I wanted to get seen for 
but you're in the mix of a lot more people here than you are in the UK so it's tougher to get the gigs but at least you feel you're getting in the room for the work you know so we were planning to do this a couple of weeks ago but yeah. you were in Birmingham Alabama Birmingham yeah yeah I was yeah. and you've been spending quite a bit of time there I have uh, yeah I've been, late, I believe yeah I've been down there um, oh god I'm trying to count the times so I went there first November 2014 I was there in 15, 16, I've been there, I think that was the sixth time I've been there, maybe, fifth or sixth time, yeah. I have a, um, <clears throat> I have a commission on the go from the National Theatre of Wales for a play, a Welsh-American story, in fact. So yeah, it's my first job, uh, which is sort of... Firstly, congratulations. Yeah, I think thanks very much. Yeah, thanks, man, I'll take that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah I'll take that, congrats. Uh, yeah, it's the first time I've had... Um, well, I've been commissioned before, but like this is like it feels like a big job, you know. I pitched a really big story and a really big sort of madly epic play. Normally, you pitch these things and they'd be like, "That's nice," but can you just do like the ninety-minute version with three people? And you go, "Okay." Um, <laughs> but this time, I was like, "I want to pitch this ridiculous thing, this like huge, massive, epic play with like a cast of thousands." And they, it took them a while to give me an answer, but then they were like, "Yeah, right." <laughs> Oh. And I was like, and I remember being like, oh shit! Now I have to do it. <laughs> yeah. So, how long is the commission for? How long? How long is it? Yeah. Um, well, it's been like a long gestation. Actually, yeah. like I came across a story. I mean, I can talk about the story of it, but um, yeah, please. In 2013, I came across this rather, I think, very unique and rather, rather very moving and odd story of a Welsh artwork, a stained glass window, that was given to a. Um, given to a church in Birmingham, Alabama, a Baptist church, a black church in the heart of Birmingham, at the height of the civil rights movement. So when it was like all going to shit, if you'll pardon my French, but um, and very infamously in the States, um, and this is a major event worldwide at the time, but particularly in America, particularly in the history of race relations and the civil rights movement, that there was a very infamous bombing. That church was bombed on Sunday school on Sunday morning in the 15th of September, 63, and four little girls were murdered, four little black girls aged, um, I think, 13, 13, 12, and 10, I think were their ages. And it was the first, you know, it was worldwide headlines because children had been murdered, and they were murdered by, you know, um, for hateful uh, Ku Klux Klan murderers who went all eventually were convicted over the next 20, 30 years. Anyway, but the, 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 little, the a little known side story of that, that was a major event, you know, because it was all going on there at the time with Martin Luther King and all these people, all these remarkable people. But a little known side story, which I read about in 2013 on the 50th anniversary of the bombing, there was a small article in The Guardian written by Gary Young, who's there, who at the time was their America correspondent, a really remarkable journalist. And... Um, and it was simply was a little article in the G2 about this artwork that had been given to the church by the Welsh nation, so-called, after that bombing as a gift in solidarity. And it's called the Wales Window, uh, the Wales Window for Alabama. And it is still there in the church, which is a national landmark today. And it's the main stained glass window that oversees the entirety of the church. The sanctuary is the main window. And... Anyway, I read about it, and it's what makes it so fascinating. Um, and what what is this thing? The well, the, 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 the reason what makes it so interesting, I think, especially from a modern context now, and moving, I think, in a really essential way, was that 
basically, I think the little bit of the backstory is important until you then hear what he made, which is that he, after that bombing, he, the guy who made it, his name was John Petz, and he was a stained glass window craftsman. Oh, he'd like to call himself a craftsman rather than an artist, but he was clearly an artist. He lived in San Stefan, just outside Swansea, um, near Larn, I think, from near where Dylan Thomas is from. But he was working there, and he heard about it on the radio on the BBC, and he was so distressed immediately in the moment. He said he, he immediately said, I have to make, he thought, I must make a window for that church. And he think he pestered his wife, you know, like, for the whole night. He was like, "Make a window for that church." And I think she, like, I think she thought he'd lost his mind, you know, because it was five thousand miles away. You know, we didn't have the internet or anything. <laughs> and he was, she was like, "That's nice, John." And um, but that night, he phoned up the editor of the Western Mail, who he vaguely knew, but not very well. And you know, I think back in the sixties, you could phone up the newspaper and be like, "Give me the editor." And um, and he said, "I want to do this thing." And the editor, I think his name was David Cote or Cole, David Cole, I think his name was. Um, said. Um, that's a great idea. And they came up with this idea that in order for such a thing to be a national gift, they'd have to do a fundraising campaign where they didn't want any rich people to give all the money. They wanted it to be a national gift. So what that meant was that they they put a cap on donations. And it was a very small cap. They said, no one can give any more than two and sixpence, which I think was about 20 cents at the time. You know, it was a, a small amount of money, half a crown. And the idea being that thousands of people then would have to give in order for the the gift to be given itself, ergo national in some important way. So you know. Kickstarter. Yeah, so like early crowdfunding. I mean, yeah. before crowdfunding, really. It was like crowdfunding, but, you know, there was no sense of if you give X amount, we'll give you this or X amount. It was just basically it was like 20p. That's it. And I worked it out according to inflation. I think modern day, that's the equivalent of about £2.20, you know. Something like that, or about, you know, three bucks. Um, but, you know, it was considered to be a small amount of money. And, um, but he, they raised it in like a week. They did this newspaper campaign in the Western Mail. And it was interesting because they. What was their target? Well, the, I can't remember actually off the top of my head. But, you know, it was to make the. It's not an insignificant amount of money, but not like an insane amount of money. But also it was enough to get it made and to be shipped to the States and installed, mm. you know, all these costs. And um, but they raised the money in about a week. They did this front page campaign. But interestingly, they didn't ask the church in Alabama if they wanted anything. Oh they just they went ahead and did it. We're like, we'll give a stained glass window to this church in America. And um, but they raised the money very quickly. How did and, they get uh, the article in the Western Mail? Well, they, this, the editor agreed to do it on the front page the next day. So it was like Monday, the day after the bombing. He was like, we're going to make a window for this church. So he just he just called them up. Yeah, he called them up and he just said, I want to do it. And they went okay. Or they agreed together. And then by the end of that week, they'd raised, within a week or like eight, nine days or something, they'd raised all the cash. And then they telegrammed the church, the 16th Baptist Church. And they were like, hi, we're the people of Wales. We would like to give you a stained glass window. We've raised all this money. And loads of school children are given their pocket money, famously. You know, there was a photo, a very famous photo from a page of the Western Mail of, um, of a, like a 10-year-old white girl and a 10-year-old black girl from Tiger Bay giving their pocket money, their two and sixpence at the Western Mail offices. And I think that was the thing that really tipped the balance nationally in Wales. You know, and then a lot of money was received in churches. And Anyway, he sent this, this telegram being like, <laughs> being like we, we are the people of Wales. We would like to give you a gift in solidarity for this awful thing that's happened to you. And the preacher from the church, whose name was John Cross, wrote back saying, um, you know, he basically said, no one else has offered us anything. And we, and we would gladly take your gift. And then he invited the artist, Pets, to come and stay with him. Because he essentially he was like, the church is kind of destroyed. You know, most of the windows have been blown out. 
and you'll need to come and see what you want to do. And so the reason why I've had that whole pricey partly because of the, the fundraising thing I think makes it very moving and very interesting in terms of the energy that went into the, the giving of that gift. And especially because so much of it came from children. So in Alabama, they call it the children's window because they know the part of the story is so many school kids gave cash, gave their tiny amount of pocket. And they know it's from Wales. And they know it's from Wales. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because at the bottom of it, it says, given by the peoples of Wales, UK, 1965, which is when it arrived finally. But... What makes it interesting, I mean, Pets went to Alabama, <clears throat> so like 10 days after it had happened, and he God, stayed. it's amazing it all happened so quickly, Yeah, it? so quickly, and he like got on a, he flew over, but he came in secret, because as I discovered when I first there, it was illegal for a white man to be working with a black man in that state at that time, because it was at the height of segregation, and all that Jim Crow horrors, all that stuff. And so he stayed with the preacher of that church in the heart of West Birmingham, which is the where the black community at the time was focused, certainly, I think. And... Um, but he was there in secret because it would have been dangerous for him as well as dangerous for them, actually, both ways. But he was there for a couple of weeks. And, you know, you read interviews with John Petz. He's an interesting man. He's dead now. His kids are alive. Mick Petz, a really nice guy. And his, his uh, wife survives him. Anna, a lovely woman. And, um, but as they told me, and also in interviews with John, that, you know, he, I think it was a bit of a wake-up call when he was there. He'd seen some things in his life. He was in the Air Ambulance Corps in the Second World War and had seen, he'd been a part of the group that liberated Belson, one of the Holocaust camps. So he'd seen some stuff, but I think when he went there and saw what was going on, I think it was profoundly shocking. And he had an idea with what he was going to make, or something quite generalised, I think, you know, like the Beatitudes or in glass. But I think he came away essentially being it like he'd seen all the protests and the level of the violence he'd met alabama welshmen white alabama welshmen people who came from welsh families who'd settled in alabama who were you know profoundly racist and like awful you know right. and he would come on behalf of a gift from wales which was the opposite of that and i think he found it all very deeply challenging and very obviously just profoundly upsetting in many ways and um nothing compared to the people who were living through that there obviously but you know just in terms of the simple human experience of that he came back and didn't quite know what to make and he took him about a year but then what he ended up making is this the image that he came up with is he remembered and he saw one of the newspaper articles from when he was there was of the protests in the park by the church called kelly ingram park and it was of water cannons. They had military water cannons firing on the on the marchers and the protesters, and they were so fierce that they'd smash your ribs and break your ribs, and the force of it would splay your arms out. So he saw an image of a young black man protesting and with being hit by this water cannon with his um, arms splayed out. And, um, and, if, and he immediately thought it looked like a crucifixion image. And so what the Wales window is, is an image of a crucified black Christ in the image of a civil rights protester being struck by water and bullets. In a very sort of psychedelic, actually, rather abstract way, but it's extraordinarily beautiful. And at the bottom of it says, given by the people of Wales, UK. So, and in a modern context, I remember when I saw that story, I was like, this is kind of a remarkable thing. The act of giving, I think, was what made it mm. so moving. And also the sense of national gift, why it was the Welsh people, maybe not in their entirety, obviously, but a significant enough cross-section of them decided they wanted to give anything. And no one in no other country decided thought that, or no one else had that idea for that matter. You know, but then what he ended up making was an image of a crucified black Christ, and in that church itself, there was one other window that featured an image of Jesus, and it was a very white Scandinavian Jesus, as they tended, as they tend to be. You know, you think of Christ, you know, in lots of popularized images, he tends to be very blonde and looks like he's from Norway, even though obviously he came from the Middle East. <laughs> but, um, but you know, there was an image that bomb went off, and the image of the. Um, 
the white Christ, the sort of Scandi Christ that they did have in that church. All the other windows were destroyed in that bombing, I think, apart from this one image of Christ that they had, and his white face had been blown out. So that was the only thing that was that had been the only window that survived that bombing was an image of Christ, but its face had been blown out. And so the fact that Petz, this you know Welsh artist, it kind of decided to then make an image of a black Christ, not to replace that window. That window, I think, is still there, but to become the central image of that church. And also the the the, the phrase from the Bible he puts underneath it. I'm not massively religiously inclined, but I found it very moving. You know, at the bottom of it, it says in large letters, "You do it to me," which is an image, a quote from the Gospel of Matthew, I think it is. And I think Christ Jesus says to his disciples, he says, whatever it is that you do unto the least of my brethren, you do it unto me. You know, so the idea being that, you know, mm-hmm. a, an act of murder against four young black girls, four children, four children, you know, is something that is a, a grave offence on like the whole of humanity. So I think I found that very moving, obviously, on a, just a universalised sense. Mm-hmm. But also actually from a modern sense, I was very interested about that as a work of art you know, in in terms of a white Welsh guy making an image of a black Jesus. And at the time, I think it was received purely in the spirit of a, of a gift, or, so, or as I've found so far, you know. And certainly there's a limiting amount of information about that because anything to do with, like, black culture at the time, particularly in the South, didn't get any press at all because of the nature of the segregation and what was going on during Jim Crow. But, um, but now I think it would be a far more controversial thing, I think, you know, in contemporary terms in art and culture now all these ideas around appropriation you know and whose culture is whose and all those things which are wherever you sit on that fence is a richly interesting debate that's going on and I remember thinking that image in a modern context is maybe now almost more troubling and difficult to some people than maybe it was at the time Mm. and so I, I find myself becoming really intrigued by it and the, why the Welsh had given it. And uh, that's, at the moment, probably about as much as I can say about it because I found myself so stimulated that I kind of pitched some research about it to the artistic director at the time in the National Theatre of Wales. Um, his name's John, a guy who's called John McGrath. He's moved on now, and there's a wonderful uh, lady running it now called Curly Therai. And, um, but I just pitched it to John. I said, I find this is really interesting. I don't know what I'd do about it, but I think it could be a really big play. And he, bless him, he just was like, sure, man. <laughs> when I have some money, off you go to Alabama and write me some material. And that was in 2015. And I sent in a load of stuff. And I didn't hear back from them, actually, for about 18 months. Um, but they finally got back to me and said, yeah, why don't you give that a go? So that's what I'm up to. I'm interested to know, what advice would you give to someone who, let's say, you know, a young guy or girl back home in Wales who has a, an idea, or anyone really with an idea for a, a play they might want to write or get a commission or in a Ooh. similar position? What, would you, what wow. would you say to them? Wow, 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 wow. Uh, <laughs> um, well, on a simple level, um, I think you just got to sit down and write it and not worry too much about how it should be. There's definitely a lot of, I mean, also, you know, I never, I've never been on a creative writing course. Maybe I should. <laughs> Maybe some people are watching my plays and are like, send that man to a creative writing course. <laughs> um, but I think for me, being an actor and having acting training, 
I think a lot of actors actually can lend themselves quite well to writing plays because I think they intuitively have an understanding, you know, like a muscle mm. memory understanding of things like form, you know, and how plays work or how dialogue works because it needs to be sayable and understand, you know, from rehearsing plays and also make new plays which get reworked as an actor you start to understand how plays are structured and how they work and kind of in some ways, you know, not like you become a genius or anything, but you understand certain things in a sort of functional way. So I think in that respect, if you're if you haven't had you know any acting background i would say probably start reading a lot of plays you know if you mm. if you're interested in writing for theater um but also i think on a simple level i i think maybe more fundamentally if you feel you have an idea to write a play just sit down and write it because mm. you can always rewrite it and make it better but i think if you've got that itch i don't think you should sit on it but i think you've just got to write what you want to write and then start looking for those places where these things can at least be given some form of platform. You know, mm. certainly send them off to the big new writing theatres. You have no harm. There's no harm not doing that. It'll get read. People will give it script reports. You'll get feedback. It's the, and I'm talking about the UK here, you know. You can send them to any of the big new, new writing theatres and you'll get a report back within the year normally mm. um, if they choose not to do it. But, you know, otherwise, I think if you're in Wales, you know, if you're listening and you're like a <laughs> Welsh playwright, budding Welsh playwright, and you want something, you have something you want to get staged, whatever as you are, you know, I th- would really encourage you you to there's some fantastic platforms in wales for things to get read and seen the ones that i'm personally aware of is uh you know the other room i mentioned them earlier in cardiff for a small pub theater doing really top class work run by a lovely guy called dan jones at the moment and busy day and they have all forms of stuff for new writers so go and check them out look them up on their social media and their website um, but also other companies, the Sherman in Cardiff, Cloyd, obviously up in North Wales. I think they have a young, uh, uh, you know, a young artist scheme there. And there's a variety of other ones as well. I think all around Wales and in Cardiff, particularly Chapter Arts, um, Dirty Protest is a young company run by a friend of mine called Matt, uh, Boff, Matt Borgo. You know, I know that they develop. Yeah, Dirty mm-hmm. Protest. Yeah, they're a fantastic company. But you know, I know they. All I mean is that they develop work, and I think they're interested in young writers and helping facilitate. So, I mean, I'm in a different country now. You know, so I'm a little bit out of the loop. But I'm aware of that stuff. So, I think if you're in Wales and you're interested in getting into playwriting, there's all sorts of places to start. You know, get going is the first thing to do. Don't hold back. I'm not a believer in you know sort of the rules and regulations. Feeling like you have to understand the sort of platonic form or whatever before you get mm. going it's nonsense you know mm. every story has the form it will it will get there if you want to invest the time and there are, there are places and avenues for you to find for it to be invested it might feel like hard work and if you're feeling confident you know there are places like the edinburgh finch festival which i'd also really encourage to jump into the fire you know write your play find a shitty venue behind a pub in edinburgh and like go and put it on how does how does that for those who don't you know aren't familiar with the Edinburgh Film, Film Festival Fringe Festival how does how does that work like how do you even oh it's actually when I say it's straightforward I mean it's more complicated than it sounds but to a degree it's quite straightforward there's something called the Edinburgh Fringe Society they run the festival there's loads of different venues you can apply directly to all of the venues that for if you go on the website there'll be all the venues there and you have a show you want to do and you make an application simple as that and they will often read the script and say yes or no on the basis of a pack but they'll probably say it'll cost you x amount of money you know and you have to do a budget and stuff like that but it's mm. simpler than it sounds but you know the thing with edinburgh is it's a massive shit show and, uh, <laughs> and you know actually getting your things seen is a different kettle of fish you know it's like the average audience is something like five people but if you're just starting it doesn't matter because i think you know taking that plunge to just get something on you, you know i mean it, you never know you literally have no idea where that's going to lead you yeah look at you now you're on the you're on the new york welsh podcast and <laughs> look at me look where i am now <laughs> top of the world <laughs> yeah.
<laughs> Who would have thought? Who would have thought? All this way. Um, awesome. Well, we're moving obviously towards towards wrapping up. Um, uh, can I uh, do yeah, a little bit? Um, yeah, little plugs. Um, apparently, I have a mailing list on my website, which I wasn't even aware of. But um, I would please encourage people. Um, uh, yeah, if you want to go on my mailing list, that'd be great. So I definitely will have some updates of some things coming up. And my website is www.howelljohn.com. And for those of you listening who don't know how that's spelled, that's H-Y-W-E-L and J-O-H-N uh, dot com. But apart from that, I also do a podcast, which I would encourage as many people as possible to listen to. And it actually crosses over from some of the things we've been talking about. The podcast I do with two guys who I've met in Alabama. So if the project I was talking about earlier piques your interest, um, I've, I'm doing a podcast with uh, two guys from the southern states um, called Pete and Coulter. And the podcast is called The Fire Escape. And um, we can be found um, on Simplecast and I think still currently on SoundCloud, but we've moved over to Simplecast and also on Stitcher and on iTunes, of course. And we're on all the relevant social medias. So find us there. And we, our theme is definitely that which is transatlantic. You know, we talk a lot about the crossover between American and British or, dare I say, Welsh culture. So, yeah, if you've enjoyed or been interested in that aspect of what we talked about today, please do tune in. That would be great. We hope you enjoyed listening, and if you did, then please subscribe and leave us a review. The more people review the show, the more people get to hear the show. If you'd like to get in touch with us, then the email address is podcast at newyorkwelsh.com or you can contact us through our Instagram or Twitter, which are both simply at New York Welsh. And if you'd like to stay up to date with the latest goings on, you can do so by subscribing to our monthly newsletter, which you can find on our website, newyorkwelsh.com. Welsh.com.